Hi everyone, welcome to the Ice House podcast. Today we have Peter Thompson, who is, our, who is our Chief Technology Officer at the Ice House. He's on the Ice House leadership team and today's podcast is all about getting to know him better and his responsibilities at the Ice House. So welcome Peter, thanks for chatting with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me along bro, excited to be here. Yeah, no worries. And we always start, our, especially our staff interviews, with some quick-fire questions to help um, those listening get to know us a little bit better. So first things first, how do you take your coffee? Um, so I take a flat white and recently um, been getting that from Goodness Gracious, which is a little place here in Parnell who don't do the best coffee in the world, but they never do bad coffee. So it's absolutely <laughs> consistent. So yeah, that's yeah the thing... That's the thing I look out for is actually uh, a consistent coffee. Yeah, I like that. That's good. Cool. Morning or night person? Um, night person, um, we've got a two-year-old and a six-month-old. So, um, yeah, spending a lot of time awake at the moment. And but, um, Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. They're, night, they're night people as well. So, we're kind of like <laughs> <laughs> leading a double life at the moment. Yeah, oh, legends. Uh, Favourite meal? Um, I love pizza, um, and when we lived in New York, there was a little place in Brooklyn called Luzo's, which was a little hole-in-the-wall kind of Italian place, been there for 100 years, and oh. just absolutely amazing. I think the problem is once you have New York pizza, it's very hard to have pizza anywhere else in the world, but um, yeah. yeah, that's what I always re remember as, as being a favourite meal. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, well, off the back of that, favourite place in the world. Is it New York, or is it different? <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, New York was amazing, but it really is a bit of a concrete jungle. Um, I was actually born in the UK and um, we lived in London for a couple of years. And I think what I really loved about London is you've got the big city, you've got the energy, but um, yeah, you can get out and get out to, to Cornwall and get out to the rest of like the UK and mm -hmm. get up to Scotland and, and even just the travel over to Europe, for example, jumping on, sure. a, on a Ryanair flight. So in a way, Probably a favourite place is London, but that's because it's really easy to leave and go yeah. other places. I like that answer. That's awesome. That's cool. Okay, when you're not working, how do you like to spend your time? Um, well, these days chasing after a toddler, but um, yeah, also really love um, skiing. So I just love getting up in the mountains. Uh, it was something we always used to do as a family. So kind of remember that time, um, almost just the fun of being up there and. Um, yeah, riding the chairlift and having lunch and kind of hanging out as much as the actual physical skiing but just that whole kind of being out in the mountains is a, that's kind of my happy place yeah awesome that's really cool middle name um james nice nice i like that i've had some interesting ones that have sort of taken me off you know caught me off guard but james that's right down the middle it's kind of what i expected and to finish off the quick fire questions what uh what's the best career advice that you've ever received oh um i think um for me it was to look really simply at the opportunities that come up in terms of like new things that you can do mm -hmm. and to make sure that you like the craft of what you're doing so peel away all the artifice and just like do i like the thing that i'm physically doing am i chopping wood or driving a truck or writing code and to be really honest about what that is like are you if you're an investment banker are you going to spend, spend your day kind of doing spreadsheets so figure out what is the craft and do you yeah. love that um yeah. then 
imagine being there and then look to the left and the right and see who your colleagues are and not just the general vibe, but actually who do you physically sit next to? Mm-hmm. Um, because they're the people you'll end up seeing every day and going out for coffee with and mm-hmm. they'll be your kind of comrades. Um, and then also look at the place, like are you outside, are you in an office, what are you doing? So if you get really, really practical, it peels away a lot of the BS around like consulting and digital and, <laughs> yeah. and it's just like, do I like what I'm doing? Do I like who I'm doing it with? And do I like where I'm doing it? Because yeah. if those things are good, then you'll have good days and bad days and good bosses and bad bosses, yeah. but you'll actually love what you're doing. And so I've kind of stuck to that. Cool. Um, and there's been a couple of roles that haven't met that. And it's really obvious when they don't, but yeah, um, yeah that's, that's kind of been a good guide for me. Yeah. Cool. Great answer. And flowing on from that, um, we'd love, you know, diving a little bit deeper now um, for you to walk us through your career to date and what you did before working at the Ice House. Yeah, so I um, I started off as a corporate lawyer working in mergers and acquisitions um, and worked on the first IPO, like really, really major retail IPO that had happened in, in almost a decade, uh, taking the Vector um, power line kind of company out to um, public offering and I worked on the legals for that wow. and I was still I mean I was a baby lawyer but um, it got me really interested in the process of taking all of the things that we did in like hardcore kind of corporate securities finance law and then okay well how do we simplify that onto a billboard and because yeah. you know you see those kind of ads and there's a little disclaimer underneath saying kind of capital at risk kind of subject to the Securities Act, blah, blah, blah. That yeah. was my job was kind of either reviewing those or writing those disclaimers. Yeah. Um, and it got me uh, interested in two things. One is like, how do you explain complex financial kind of investment things to the public? Yeah. Um, and then also, I had been quite focused on this, like law is like a serious profession and I'm going to be a serious kind of lawyer. Um, and I got to know the kind of PR, comms and marketing team that was working at Vector doing the IPO kind of publicity. And they were just like really fun, really yeah. kind of cool people, <laughs> um, really interesting challenges they were working on in terms of communications. Like I assumed advertising and marketing was all just like toothpaste tubes and kind of fluffy kind of creative ads but they were actually like really um thinking strategically about the business and working at a senior level and all of those sorts of things so it kind of gave me a bit of a a hint that there might be more to life than just being a lawyer yeah um so i i worked i mean i kept on working at russell mcfay so it's recently major law firm did some other kind of dv um dd uh work on different deals but um at some point got the chance to join the um, Better by Design team at New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. So that was on the really early days of design thinking as a kind of approach to business problem solving and new product development. And I think what they were looking for at NZTE was people that were interested in design or passionate about kind of um, the, the way that you use the mindset of a designer to think about business problems, but that could also sympathize with a fair amount of cynicism towards that whole kind of world. And mm-hmm. so I had that background as a lawyer, but then also an interest in, interest in kind of comms and um, communication. 
and so got the chance to be in at the ground floor when the Better by Design program was getting started and helped partially kind of craft the program, but also just get out and meet a lot of kind of Kiwi businesses that were like some of them quite conservative manufacturing businesses, but were looking at the, the challenge of how do they become more customer centered. Mm. Um, so did that for a couple of years and that was a really great grounding in how hard it is, even if we had a free program government funding, we had like funding to go on top of that to add to projects and things, and we still couldn't get people to say yes to, to some of this because they were just, that um, it was new, it was disruptive, bringing on kind of external advisors um, yeah. to, to help the business was a challenge for people. Um, but I got to know one of the teams that was doing the actual like design thinking uh, consultancy work. Um, so it was Brian Richards in the BRR team um, and kind of fell in love with the branding and storytelling part of design. So mm. that's not just the logos, it's also like how do you actually get to that um, core kind of purpose, that mantra, that why for a business and then how do you communicate that. Um, so I got into that brand strategy consulting work with, with Brian and the team, did that for a couple of years um, and then Eventually, we were like, okay, well, we've got to go and do an OE. Um, most of the people that I knew that had been really successful in their careers had spent time overseas and had that like diverse viewpoint. Yeah. Um, and we were kind of ready to go. And uh, I think I'd almost, I think I'd already given notice at BRR, and then the um, global financial crisis happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so. <laughs> wasn't a great time to be arriving in London Yeah. Right, when uh, I think the BBC had laid off kind of 10,000 people, uh, the banks were all laying people off, uh, the ad agencies were all cutting hard. So it was not a great time to turn up in a new city in a competitive market and say, hey, um, why, why don't you do some brand strategy and talk about the meaning of life when your entire business is kind of on the line. So yeah, um, I had some advice from someone who said, tell them when you arrive that you know how to use Facebook. Yeah. Someone will give you a job in <laughs> social media because it was in yeah. those early days of digital, social, what we now call kind of content and community. None of that yeah. really existed. Yeah. So I, I traipsed around London and I assumed all marketing was just kind of marketing because in New Zealand you had branding and, and advertising agencies and that was kind of about it. But in London, it's a very, um, well, siloed sounds bad, but they're very specialized disciplines. Mm, yeah. So I went and talked to, to ad agencies and said, oh, I want to do social media and digital. And they were like, oh, okay, well, so that must mean social media advertising. So you want to do Facebook ads, Google ads, and can you help us with that? And I was like, yeah, okay, that's interesting. That's kind of part of what I see as being social and digital. Yeah. Um, but they just, the ad agencies just wanted to do ads. And then um, went and talked to the design firms because obviously had some connections from working in design. Um, and But the, the design firms all looked at social and digital and just wanted to do landing pages, brochure websites, mm. and little micro, micro sites, like kind of Instagram style stuff. Yeah. Um, so they all wanted to do digital design because they were design firms. And then by coincidence, I had a recruiter that sent me off to go and talk to some PR agencies. And I was like, there is no way I'm going to work in PR. Like, what <laughs> this is not yeah, like a profession yeah, yeah. that, yeah. I mean, I had some exposure to through the Vector thing, but it like just wasn't on my frame that I would get into that industry. Yeah. But it turns out 
that in London in particular, the PR agencies are really what we would call in New Zealand an integrated communications agency. So they're yeah. comms, like full stack comms agencies that were doing interesting things around like, and this is the early days of social. So this is like blogger relations, community relations, managing oh. online forums for like games companies, um, managing the actual social organic social media accounts. So yeah, people yeah customer feedback and that just felt like it had much more honesty and integrity for me cool. so i ended up spending uh about yeah four or five years in the uk working in digital pr um cool. and so worked for everyone from like toshiba launching new laptops to launched a couple of camera new kind of travel cameras for right. panasonic um did some kind of games pr for different kind of games companies um but in the course of doing that, I got to know the, the kind of technology scene in the UK a little bit better. Yeah. And it was in the early days of what they wanted to be the UK version of Silicon Valley. So it was called Silicon Roundabout. So it's a, um, the Old Street Roundabout in Shoreditch. It's kind of East London, kind of a yep. hipster neighborhood. Um, cool. But there was some cheap office space and there was a bit of a emerging kind of movement around like startups in coming out of London, coming out of the UK. Um, and there was a bit of a scene building up there. So I got to know some of the angel investors, got to know some of the incubators and uh, eventually got the chance to go in and work with an innovation center called the Innovation Warehouse. And they had an angel network, uh, accelerator program, and a co-working space. Wow, that's um, and cool. And some training programs that they were running as well. So not awesome. entirely unlike the ISA. Yeah, I was like, but, that sounds um, familiar. Yeah, yeah it, does, <laughs> it does sound familiar, funnily enough. But um, yeah, Innovation Warehouse were a really great team. Um, they hadn't done a lot of marketing and branding. So we got to create a new logo, create oh. new kind of digital presence for them, really kind of take it to market. Mm. But it also got me more and more interested in some of the individual startups. And that's where my career kind of really changed is um, I got to know the team at Cedars, who were an online investment platform. Mm. And it was just one of those things where suddenly I'd had this career where I'd bounced around kind of law and design and some of the marketing things. and and it all felt like it was a little bit jumbled. And then I walked into working with an online investment platform and suddenly it was like, oh, okay, well, because we're doing uh, equity crowdfunding or online investment, you need to understand yeah. the legals. We need to be able to actually um, build a product and kind of take that to market. And we need to be able to tell the story and communicate it really well. So that, um, that uh, worked there for a couple of years and then by coincidence won the green card lottery Yes. So um, ended up uh, taking a chance to move to New York. Um, cool. And funnily enough, equity crowdfunding had just been legalized there. So it had been legalized two or three years earlier in the UK. So I'd gotten to like work with the Cedars team from when we were about kind of 10 people, grew that to like about 50 people by the time I left. Um, yep. And like really just uh, absolutely business was accelerating and growing and then joined the Seed Invest team in New York. Mm. Um, so that was a second like online investment platform, a little bit more venture capital focused because yeah. of the way the, the US kind of market worked. But um, again, responsible for marketing, but with a decent element of product design, um, product development. And then after a couple of years in New York, um, we're just starting to feel like we'd been away from home for too long and missing family and yeah. thinking about kind of a family ourselves and things. So took the chance to move back to New Zealand 
and met up with the team at Snowball Effect, which is a third online investment platform. <laughs> and, and like, here we go said, again. Yeah, Gabrielle said to me, no, you can't make this is like you can't keep doing startups, um, <laughs> particularly the same startup, but in a different yeah. jurisdiction. But um, the Snowball team, uh, again, slightly different New Zealand take on that whole issue of um, how do you actually effectively do a mini IPO? And in the New Zealand market, it suits rather than technology startups um, and kind of angel investing, it actually suits more like um, breweries and um, so worked with Zephyr Cider to yeah. do a mini IPO, kind of allowing people to buy shares in the cider um, business uh, mm -hmm. with Reefton Distilling, which is a whiskey distillery in the South, um, South Island. And again, getting the local community to become shareholders in that business is actually yeah, a really cool. cool kind of use of the technology. Yeah. Um, so worked with Snowball for a little while, um, and then we had our, um, our new baby, Isabel. So she arrived, and so um, kind of thought, right, it's time to get serious. I'll go and get a corporate job. <laughs> so I went to work for the Cleminger Group, um, in particular, a market research and digital analytics business called Perceptive. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, okay, this is, I'm going to put on a suit. This is now a kind of good, serious <laughs> corporate career. I've done all the startup stuff. I'm ready to actually kind of, yeah, be an adult. Um, and I'd taken it because it was going to be more safe, stable, and secure. But mm. um, after about, oh, what were we, maybe six months, um, uh, the teams were restructured. There'd been an acquisition mm. and some of the work that we were doing in terms of analytics and digital was consolidated back to Australia. And so I ended up um, getting made redundant. Yeah, um, me. And so well, not funny, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's um, funny how it works out though. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it was a, it was an amazing agency. They're doing really great work. Um, they've actually since expanded, um, moved around a couple of the teams and things. And for the right scale of client, that type of agency can be really transformative because they can deploy like really massive kind of um, resource onto a project. So it was a cool thing to be part of. Love the team, still in touch with um, quite a lot of them. But um, it was one of those kind of unhappy coincidences because within a matter of like weeks, I'd seen a um, seen a LinkedIn post from Andy Hamilton. Yeah. And uh, Andy had said, oh, we're thinking of uh, expanding our kind of digital presence and yeah, ended up reaching out and, and here we are. Yeah, pretty cool. And so following from that, well, first of all, that's an amazing, I just love all the ebbs and flows and um, the experience in so many areas and me getting to work with you, Peter, you can definitely tell, you know, you've got your experience in marketing and advertising and you're thinking that way. Um, and yet yeah, lots of different angles that you can think from because of the experience that you've had in the past. So it's really cool to hear that. So following from that, what is, what is your role at the Ice House um, as, yeah, Chief Technology Officer? Yep. Yeah, so that's... Um it's been really interesting to kind of take all of that kind of international experience, all those diverse backgrounds and bring it back into actually something fairly straightforward and simple at the ISAF. So I'm yeah. responsible for uh, new product development and yeah, digital um, products and services uh, and in particular around 
everything that we're doing with technology. So that's um, particularly yeah, creation of new services, any of the things that we're doing to kind of digitize what we're already doing or bring new products on stream. And mm -hmm. then also just making sure that all of the things that we're doing um, in terms of yeah, technology is safe, secure, and kind of working for everyone. So a general kind of CTO role, which has been interesting for me coming from such a diverse background. But um, luckily enough, we've got a really good team, really good support. So I've been able to kind of pick that up and um, and drive some of what we're doing forwards, which has been good because we've got a lot of new things that we're working on, which is really cool. Totally. And so you're um, split in the Ice House and Ice House Ventures, so cover both worlds, which really yeah. um, explains, you know, your your background in startup world too. Um, so that's really cool mix there, which is great. Awesome. So you first heard of the Ice House through, well, no, when did you first hear of the Ice House in general? So I know you saw Andy Hamilton's post and that's how you, you know, ended up in the seat. But when did you first hear of the Ice House? And um, yeah, and what drew you to the role? Yep. So um, funny enough, I first heard of the Ice House about 15 years ago when I was doing uh, finishing up my law degree and you have to do a pro bono um, volunteer internship with an organisation. Yeah. Um, and I had uh, a friend, Paul Adams, who was working at the Ice House at the time. And um, I knew Paul through law school, funnily enough. Um, and uh, Paul got me in, and so we were. The Ice House was downstairs at the time. In the textile loft. It was Paul, Andy, um, probably Ray Wynn, um, possibly Liz was either about to start or had just started. And wow. so I took a, a kind of summer internship, sat in the corner, and did research into um, funding methods so we were like because it was the early days of being a non-profit so we're like yeah. well, should we get sponsorship from rotary or from yeah. churches or yeah. um, from the lotto foundation or what should we do how we can we get some money from so i kind yeah. of did a research project but it exposed me early on to some of the thinking in terms of um, innovation and entrepreneurship which again i've been quite cynical about but mm. um it kind of helped, yeah, that, that experience really helped plant the seed in terms of knowing that there was an ecosystem here in New Zealand. It wasn't super high profile at the time, but you could tell that there was some building momentum around yeah. kind of innovation and entrepreneurship in New Zealand, which was really exciting. Yeah, that's awesome. Man, such a funny perspective it must be to, you know, be having been in that seat as an, as an intern and then coming into this more of a, well, a leadership role in the technology space and seeing how far the business, the organization has grown in that time. Um, that must, how, how was that? Like, how was yeah. that? It's just a completely different business now in some regards because of the scale, but actually the fundamentals in terms of the focus have been really consistent over that time. Um, yep. I think Liz talks a lot about being purpose-driven and, and purpose-led, um, yep. and I think that stayed true. But I think the other thing too is the real focus from the early days around on the education and training and development work that we do with um, SMEs that mm. really thinking about like, okay, well, what would an MBA level program look like for business owners who are allergic to kind of academic kind of guff but actually really need help to get their businesses kind of focused and deliver uh, delivering and maybe even their own leadership style on things and that's 
that's kind of stayed true. Um, yeah. And all of the things around that have kind of grown, but that seed crystal is still there. And mm. then the original insight around like, how do we discover and invest in the best startups coming out of New Zealand and really turn them into a rocket ship? Yeah. And the method by which we've done that has changed. So those incubators, accelerators in the early days, the angel network, and then even the work that we're doing now, kind of leaving that behind and actually focusing much more on um, funds, managed funds, like yeah. much more venture capital style. Um, again, the method by which we do things might have changed, but that fundamental purpose, but also the fundamental audience, the fundamental mm -hmm. problems we're trying to address, those have been consistent. So yeah. honestly, it's, it's actually just felt like coming home. Yeah. Man, that's so really cool to hear. That's really awesome. Okay, well, with that, what is your favourite aspect of your role? Um, I think for me, like, while I love the larger context, um, I think for me, actually, personally, one of the reasons I've made the switch into focusing purely on technology um, these days is that I've discovered over the course of my career that I actually love building things. Yeah. So that was always, um, that was always something when I worked on, like, these communications or campaigns or digital projects and things it was always a sense of satisfaction of like oh okay we've built this website we're now launching it mm. the adrenaline buzz of like that all-nighter the night before it launches the yeah. sense of actually shipping something and then seeing people use it because yeah. in a lot of kind of marketing you kind of throw stuff out there and you don't really know if it's working or not or um like I love with um like actual product development when you're building particularly if i've been coding or even just like done the specifications and worked on the user journeys and the the, the scope for something but just seeing things come to life because mm -hmm. you can then look back like i can go home at the end of the day and say there was something that didn't exist yeah and i arrived did yep. something and <laughs> now something exists in the world that didn't before and, yeah. and honestly that just somehow suits my personality um i find that really rewarding i put probably too much of my kind of attention and love and kind of um ego even into like making sure that whatever we're creating and whatever i'm associated with is really amazing like i think yeah. it's got to be high quality to be worth doing but yeah. it's just so rewarding to see something come to life that you kind of it's worth it yeah, that's so, so cool. Yeah, I love that. What a great answer. That's great. Cool. So from there, what excites you most about the opportunities in technology at the Ice House and our digital transformation projects? Um, yeah, that's a really interesting one. Um, so I think the, um, the, the way that we have um, started to use data as mm -hmm. part of what we're doing is really interesting because we're moving from very much of a kind of one touch interaction both yeah. on the growth side of the business we would have a training program um but then i mean in theory there was a life cycle kind of journey but we were really managing that in a data-driven way uh setting reminders bringing people in and creating a kind of interactive or holistic experience and likewise for investors, we were bringing an investor in, they might have a transaction, we'd do some basic reporting, but it wasn't really a kind of whole of life and relationship. And even for startups, actually, we, we can now invest into them further along. And I think that's a trend, that's a change that's happening for our clients, but it's really interesting for us as well, is moving yeah. from one-time transactions into a much more kind of long-term relationship. Yeah. Um, and then the role that technology can play in that 
in terms of actually providing, and I think this is a massive change that we're going to see in like across a lot of industries, is moving from just single shot kind of e-commerce, like just get in, make a transaction, get out again. That's actually fairly straightforward mm. these days, and it's kind of table stakes. But if you look at like, I don't know, a builder or a plumber, like we're getting to a point now where people kind of expect they like they expect to be able to send you an email or like do an inquiry through your website. That's not actually going to give you an advantage anymore. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you can actually provide a dashboard or a place, place for people to come back to or something that allows them to actually solve a problem that they're having on an ongoing basis, then yeah. you have the switch from a transaction into a relationship. And so that's something we're spending a lot of time on at the Ice House. Um, and I think that's, it's, I'm finding there's, there's so much that we can, we've already done and there's so much more that we can do in that space too. Yeah, it's cool. And I love that all of our transformation you know, projects are so people driven, you know, we're wanting to add value to people's journeys. And because these people are busy, um, you know, business owners, that they've got a lot going on and they're making some awesome impact in their worlds and communities. It's important that we bring that value to them in a really succinct, easy way, you know, that makes it easy for them. So it's cool that people sort of come back to the, that's the heart of, of it, which is yeah. great. I think just to add to that, the other thing too is that um, historically, a lot of what we've done has involved kind of peer-to-peer, -peer, like small group sessions or yeah. kind of peer sharing and things. But like, while that happens on program or in the room, like we haven't always had ways to facilitate that digitally or to encourage those peer-to-peer -peer connections. And I think mm -hmm. um, whether it's through social media, through the community and events that we're running, or some of the kind of digital tools that we're bringing online, I mean, you and I have worked together a lot on Ice House Central, for example. Yeah, yeah um, totally. And it's just so rewarding to see the business owners talking to each other. Yeah. So we've created an environment, but they're actually having a conversation. And we're seeing the same thing on the investment side as well when we run talent events where we've got kind of people networking with each other in terms of sourcing talent right. or investors getting to know each other better and things through different channels. Like those like there's a real role for the ice house i think a lot of businesses could do this more mm. is to have the confidence to say okay it's not just it's we've moved from run time one time into a relationship but also it's not just a relationship of us to you kind of one to many mm. it's actually a many to many peer group a community people have a shared problem or a shared interest yeah. that we as a business have identified a group of people and that we have the the confidence to get out of the way sometimes and actually let them talk yeah yeah and it's such a buzz seeing yeah. you know other business owners connect together do business together chat on something that we've created um just for that purpose you know it's it really is a buzz so totally agree awesome um this is an interesting one i probably chucked this in here um because i was really i was really interested to know but what is the most challenging part of your role oh um <laughs> yeah well this morning i was helping um daryl and fix the wi-fi because she couldn't connect to the network so um i have a i have a small part of my role because i'm responsible for technology across the entire business that well i don't do help desk um Sometimes people come and tap me on the shoulder because it's easier than logging a ticket with our outsourced um, yeah. help desk. So, yeah. um, and but but it speaks to a larger thing, which is that a lot of technology is actually personal, or it's like there's a saying. Um, is it there's an acronym they use in IT, which is like P 
P-I-B-K-S or something. And it stands for pro problem exists between keyboard and seat. <laughs> As in, so the, as in the user has just like not understood what's going on and yeah i think that's part of what i it's part of what i like struggle with in the role but also um think is really interesting about technology is a lot of what looks like a technology issue like we're, we're in the process of moving to microsoft teams and rolling out yeah. OneDrive, moving away from a kind of file server like the amount of training and mm -hmm. conversations and like politics around like, okay, who's storing what folders and which files and which folder yes. and someone yeah. else is like saves things in a certain way. And someone else doesn't want to touch these old folders because they want to refer back to them, but someone else wants them really tidy. Mm. It's all personalities. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of kind of managing um, the, the personal reality. And I think the, the other part of that, which actually goes back to product development with our customers as well, which is the difference between what people say and what they actually do. Yeah, and we've had good chats about this, yeah. Yeah, and you can't get away from that in the work that I do because if you, if people tell you, oh, okay, well, I really want to download a tax statement for my investment, and then mm. we spend months building that and then no one uses it, mm. we have a problem. Yeah. Um, and likewise, if we interview mm. a bunch of people and they say, oh, I'd really love an online website where I can connect with other business owners, and mm. then we build one, yep. and no one turns up, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. we're going to know about it, and, and yeah. it is not good. So um, yeah. you, I spend a lot of time thinking about two things. One is, like, what, what will people do, either yeah. based on what they say or what we can observe in other places and transfer that over? Mm. And or what is the way that we can test something in the fastest, most efficient, most efficient way so that we can observe real behavior? Mm. Um, because there's such a delta between um, if, you, um, if you interview people about what TV they watch, then they would tell you they watch the news and documentaries. <laughs> and then you put a set-top recorder box on top of their TV and they watch sports and reality TV yeah. and daytime um, soap operas. Like yeah, so the, true. the difference between, and sometimes I think it's not even that people are, I don't think people are necessarily lying. No. Like they just don't realize, like your phone now has um, this thing called screen time, which will tell you how much time you're spending on things. Yeah. The amount of time we all spend on doing fairly mindless kind of social media stuff and things yeah. like that. Like, I'm not sure people know consciously what they're actually spending their time on or what they're mm. doing. Um, so I'm always interested in that. Yeah, what's the, what's the difference between what people say they'll do, what do they actually do, and then how do we actually account for that in our product development? Some mm. of that is a real challenge, to be honest. But um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's kind of, it's interesting, it's worthwhile, but it's, it's not easy. Yeah, I, yeah, that's a great answer. And even going back to the whole team stuff around, you know, moving to teams and having to communicate that across to the team, I think it's important to talk about because there, there will be so many business owners that have to go through that and work out what works best for their team and um, processes and all that sort of stuff. And then, yeah, around the what people say versus what they do. Man, that's interesting. And I remember when you told me that, and I, I was just like, it's just, it's so true because, um yeah, it's a bit of a tension and you've just got to work out the sweet spot. So, um, yeah, great answer. That's cool.
Awesome. Um, next one here is what is a piece of advice you'd give a business owner looking to improve their technology and take part in digital transformation? Um, so I think one of the, the things that businesses don't quite realize how important it is, is their CRM. Yeah. So that's your customer relationship management system, but so, really it's your central kind of data platform. And I think there's been a real transition that people don't haven't necessarily woken up to yet is that modern CRMs yeah. are actually an index of your customers and that that should be able to sync and talk and communicate and even automate in a really seamless two-way system with everything. Mm -hmm. So that's, and because people are actually expecting that. So mm -hmm. if I call up a power company and when I, I expect them based on my phone number to know who I am rather than me yeah. having to re-explain it 10 times. Yeah. I expect them to have a dashboard at their end that says, okay, this is my power account. This is my average usage. Yeah. I expect if I unsubscribe from marketing emails that they actually stop sending them to me. They don't just yeah. like randomly re-upload a CSV to MailChimp each time and send a new email. Um, yeah. I expect that if I log on to a digital platform and see their website, that that also knows who I am and that it has up-to-date information. And totally. none of that can work without a decent CRM or at least a, a central data repository for customer data. So rather than seeing, I think about a lot of people see their CRM as just the surface layer that the sales team interacts with. Whereas I would really challenge businesses, and, and I know we're, we're going through this journey at the ISLs using Salesforce and HubSpot, mm. to think of your CRM as a central customer data platform and yeah. to really put the time in to make that awesome. Because yeah. it does seep through kind of every touch point. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. It really is. Awesome. And in, in your opinion, uh, sorry, what is your opinion on the future landscape in a COVID world for SME businesses? It's interesting because yeah. it's, it's had a real effect on digital and, um, you know, and how they said, I can't remember the exact stats, so don't quote me, but, you know, in terms of like COVID sped up, you know, business practices and, and where we were going digitally by like, I don't know, seven years, 10 years or whatever it was. Yeah. Any thoughts from you on that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a crazy time. I look back yeah. on it now in terms of the hours we pulled and the work we did in the early days of some of like getting people um, connected remotely and um, and continuing to build product and, and accelerate some of the digital work. We bought a new, an entire new program to market within a matter of months when yeah. historically that might've taken years um, and, and actually also delivered it fully remote. But I think the thing that, that really made a change in the business landscape was that some of the obvious stuff like websites and e-commerce and things like that. But the thing that was a bit more subtle for me was actually click and collect. And I don't mean the actual click and collect process itself, but um, it's the fact that there's a mix of online and offline. Yeah. So at different points in like level two and level three, level four, everything was closed. But level two and level mm -hmm. three, there was a fair amount of, okay, well, I will make the order and pay online and then I'll go and collect from the cafe or um, e-commerce like Mitre yeah. 10, Bunnings. Um, you could really tell the differences in terms of how those businesses adapted and how smoothly they could kind of switch on um, e-commerce and click and collect. And because that challenges you to have your point of sale, your online ordering, your in-team, your fulfillment, your logistics, everything has to kind of line up for click and collect to work. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, 
uh, it's really interesting as something that will carry forward. It's not necessarily the click and collect behavior, but it's the people are expecting to be able to interact with businesses in a way that suits them. Mm, so yeah. if I want to place an order for a coffee before I go, because I know I'm in a hurry and I'll walk down and get the coffee, but I want it made before I arrive, I can still use the click and collect kind of app. Like the, yeah. the, they've still got the system set up. Yeah. I might be the only person using it, but it's still there. Yeah. Um, and we've seen examples of where, like, you know, I mean, we've got stuff with um, getting things for a toddler if you need kind of more nappies in the middle of the night. We've switched to doing kind of online grocery delivery. Like, mm. I haven't been to the supermarket in a year. Wow. Um, and and yes, I don't yeah. think, I, I may never go back. Yeah. I may never go back into a supermarket. Um, yeah. Because that online ordering has become kind of a habit now. Yeah. Um, and then I'm, also, I'm getting to a point where with like baby clothing, for example, like we know her sizes, we know what we need. It's actually more convenient to do click and collect, mm. pick something up on the way home than having to go in and wander around the store. Yeah. So um, I think we're going to see more and more of that across businesses is that, the, that people are expecting to be able to interact with the business in a way that suits them. Yeah. whatever that means but it's really putting a it's putting a strain on a lot of businesses because you can't just say oh well we only accept orders in this one way because mm. there'll be someone standing next to you that is like well we've got an app we've got online we've got yeah. also sms we've got glass so being multi-channel and allowing people to kind of choose their own way through i think is is probably some of the future of this customer experience stuff yeah yeah that's awesome great great answer um cool is there anything you took or learned from 2020 that you have found you've taken into 2021? It, it could be, you know, from a work perspective, person, just anything that you've taken yeah. into this year. Well, I think a work and personal one is like the working remotely thing. Yeah. But I think yeah. we already knew that because particularly in software development, you can you know at the end of the day you've done work because you can yeah. literally look at the number of code, like lines of code that you've written and go on, okay, I did work. So that's not in question. Yeah. But what is subtle is not just remote, but also asynchronous. Yeah. So, um, well, asynchronous. So rather than like uh, in the early days of lockdown, we spent a huge amount of time on Zoom to kind mm. of stay connected. But yeah. what I found is that forced synchronicity didn't actually suit everyone. Mm. So one of the developers that worked on the uh, iSales Ventures investor portal, yeah. um, I, he and I have never met. And we've worked together for like a year now, and he's done amazing work. We've got a really good relationship. But, and this is the key thing, not only have we never met, we've spoken on the phone once. We wow. had one Skype call when we started the project. And now he's in Auckland. Like, yeah. um, it's not like he's in Dubai or in a different country. Wow. It's just like, but the, but the trick is, um, he likes to work at a time that suits him. So yeah. I can actually see from some of his code commits, like he's working between like midnight and 3 a.m. on some of what we're doing. Wow. Um, but I don't care because I just tag him in a Trello card that says, hey, we're working on a new visualization. He picks it up when it suits him, mm. works on it when it suits him, and then he just tags me when it's done. Yeah. And so no and email. Done. Yeah. No, no email, no calls, no like, yeah, no need to have meetings and things. It just, now that's a very particular type of relationship. Yeah. But I think yeah. the thing that I'm taking into to 
2021 and beyond in terms of like remote work yeah. is actually being willing to hand the baton over mm. and trust the other person to do their part and then come back when they're ready yeah. rather than saying hey can we please have a one hour zoom call and we'll sit and we'll talk about this and we'll talk about the meaning of life because well that's <laughs> That synchronization is really important in person. I'm not sure that it adds as much value when you're remote. Um, yeah. So I'm switching a little bit more to not just remote, but also time shifted. Now it's selfish as well with young kids. I can sneak in a decent amount of work from when the girls go to sleep yeah. at like five or six or seven. Yeah. And actually that's some of my most productive work time because the house is quiet and yeah everyone's relaxed and the day's kind of done and I can actually sit and get work done. And mm -hmm. if that suits me or it suits someone else, if someone else, um, Liz in our team, for example, is an early riser, if she wants to get up at six in the morning or God knows when she gets up <laughs> and absolutely crank before I'm even awake, then yeah. absolutely more power to her. Yeah. But we've got to find a way to be able to kind of pass the baton really seamlessly. Yeah, totally. And I think there's such a big element of trust, you know, businesses trusting their employees and employees knowing that they need to be trusted. And I think in the, in the most part, it was just, it worked, you know, like, um, yeah, it just, it just worked and, and productivity in, in many cases actually went up because of that, finding the times that work for you and, you know, working in with your business to make sure that works. But um, yeah, it's great. So it's awesome. Good answer. Cool. Well, I thought we're nearing the end and I've really, really enjoyed this podcast, um, like seriously insightful, but let's have a bit of a fun finish. What is an interesting fact that not many people know about you? Um, I feel like you've got lots. Yeah. <laughs> so um, one of them would be that um, as well as just loving skiing kind of as a hobby that um, I actually trained as a ski instructor. Um, so in the early days of being a baby lawyer, um, mm. I was moonlighting on the weekends, driving down to Papa, and they, to haze the kind of new instructors, um, when you're newly qualified, they put you in the kiddies ski school. Yeah. So, so I didn't have kids at the time. Um, yeah. And, and it possibly put me off for a while, <laughs> but, um, but it's absolutely amazing, like the amount of joy that like a, a four or five year old just gets from like throwing snowballs and yeah. playing around and, and so cool. skiing and things. But it's um it's really rediscovered my love of the sport as well because the discipline and the precision that you learn as an instructor, like you really learn to like be intentional about the way that you ski and the way that mm. you move and all of those sorts of things. Um, yeah. I used to do um, competitive dancing. So wow. a style of dance called um, Ciroc and- I don't know um, that, wow, that's cool. Yep. Wow. Um, and swing dance as yep. well, um, when that was popular in the early 90s. <laughs> um, <laughs> cool. But, um, but being a ski instructor was really similar. Like you learn about how to move your hand, how to kind of control your core, how yeah. to move your feet in a really kind of intentional way. And when, when you're skiing and it really is flowing and it feels like dancing or like surfing or it's mm -hmm. like, it really is like a, a beautiful feeling. Um, so I think um, that's something that, um, yeah, it's always kind of stuck with me too, is like not just a love of the sport, but a love of doing it really, really well. Mm. That's cool. That was a great fact. That's great. Cool. Well, thank you so much, um, Peter, for being on the podcast. And I hope those listening have enjoyed tuning in and learning more about what Peter does at the Ice House um, and, some, and some real goals that could actually be implemented into, you know, 
our business owners that are listening, their businesses and what they can do and what they can think more about. Um, so thank you. Appreciate your time. Cool. Likewise. Great to talk.